Well, last week we looked at that text, Luke chapter 11, and we looked at that story where Jesus is approached by his disciples and his disciples ask him, they say to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And so last week, Brad and myself, we looked at this passage and we asked each other a few questions and and we basically asked each other, how does Jesus teach his disciples how to pray? By praying the prayer that he did, this prayer that's known as the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things that happened during our conversations is Brad and I responded to each other and shared a few stories and a few questions and and theories that we had of of this text in our own lives and how we do this corporately. Uh, Brad told a story of his daughter who wondered how God could listen to all these different prayers at once. And if God has a certain capacity for listening to a thousand prayers, well, what happens to that one person who happens to be a thousand and one on his list? And it... It brought back a memory that I have of myself, probably when I was his daughter's age, maybe I was a little bit older, and I had this, this visual of what God did when he was receiving prayers from people, and I, I envisioned him on a swivel chair in a circular room, and he was surrounded by television monitors, up and down, left and right. This is great technology back in the day when I was a kid. And so our verbal prayers were transcribed into written prayers all over these television monitors. And God would look up and down, left and right, he'd swivel around. Of course, in in my youth, I thought he could only take one at a time. But he was extremely busy. This is what God did all day, every day. And for many people, that actually fits. That's a great job description for God. Let's think that's what God does. That's what God should do. He should be listening to our prayers, and he better be doing something about it. A few years ago, a movie was released called Bruce Almighty. And it's a story about a television reporter named Nolan. And the movie begins with Bruce being discontented with life. He feels like life's against him. He feels like he's getting the the short end of the stick. And so he's quite angry. He's quite bitter about his circumstances. And he has a, a supernatural interaction with God. And God basically makes him an offer. He says, well, I'm going to give you my supernatural powers and I'll see if you can do any better with it. It's a comedy, by the way, if you haven't figured it out. Uh, Bruce Nolan is played by Jim Carrey, so that gives you a little bit of a context if you haven't seen the film. And so Bruce takes the first few days of his life to kind of right all these wrongs that have happened to him. He has divine powers, so he kind of takes liberty to make things more fair for himself. But then about halfway through the movie, he starts hearing these voices in his head, and he has no idea what's happening. And he has an interaction with God, and he finds out that these are prayers. These are actually people who's praying to him. And because he's been so concerned about his own life, he hasn't been doing anything about it. And he finds out that if he continues to neglect these prayers, the voices will get louder and louder, and it's like a buildup of all these prayers. Just like that BlackBerry problem a couple of weeks ago. It's like all this data that gets built up. And so Bruce has to find some way to figure out how to process these prayers. And so we're going to watch a clip here just to give ourselves a a visual of what this type of God might look like as it deals with the nuisance of too many prayers. Prayers, prayers, okay, prayers. Uh, This creepy whisper thing has to Organization and management. That's what I need. I need a system, something concrete. Concentrate. Files. Let all prayers be organized into files. 
Well, that takes care of the voices. Not exactly a space saver, though. Grace might notice. I know. Prayer post-its! Something with a lock. Security combination. Password. Password. Yo! You've got prayers. Welcome to the Revelation Superhighway. We bless. No mess. Downloading now. It's <laughs> good. It's good. This is gonna take a while. prayer requests. I better manifest some coffee. Hola! Juan Valdez! Buenos días. Buenos días. Disfruto un buen café. Gracias, señor. Adiós. Adiós! Now that's fresh mountain-grown coffee from the hills of Colombia. Everybody's happy, and of course, they are happy for a while, but happiness doesn't last long. And then, of course, Bruce, through the course of the rest of the movie, finds out that acting as God maybe isn't as easy as he thought it would be. People pray. Lots of people pray. Most everybody prays. Putting the wrong circumstance or maybe the right circumstance, compared on your, uh, your thinking of it, atheists will pray. Agnostics will pray. They may not know why they pray. They may not know who they pray to, but they'll pray. People pray. And there's this expectation that when we pray, something happens. Something is going on to the one that we're praying to. People pray about serious things like marriages, starving children, world peace, salvation. People pray about Seemingly insignificant things, like good hair days and good weather for your golf game. But people pray, and there's this expectation that our prayers will get answered, that we'll get some sort of response, or that our prayers will be answered as we'd like them to. I went to Sunday school, I grew up going quite regularly, and I still remember some of the prayers that I heard from some of my classmates. 
I remember there was a girl about my age, and she would pray almost every week. Her prayer request was for her dad to come to church and for her dad to become a Christian. There was another kid in my class, and he always prayed that his dad would stop smoking. There was another boy in my class a few years younger than me, and he would pray for his dog to come home. And I remember asking my mom about this when I got a little older, probably when I was a teenager, and I remember asking her, what's, what's the deal with this guy? Why is he always, like, what happened to his dog? Mom said, that boy's dog ran away like two years ago. And yet this kid kept praying. I, mean, I remember some of the prayers that I prayed as a kid. I remember when I went to a new school praying for new friends. I remember praying for my aunt my uncle when they faced a divorce. I remember praying for my grandfather that he'd become a Christian. And yet sometimes, prayers don't get answered, not the way that we'd like them to. And yet the Bible is filled with some fantastic stories of answered prayers, some amazing stories. There's a character named Hannah who couldn't have any children. And she prayed for years and years and years, and then her womb was opened. And she was able to give birth, and she had a son, named him Samuel. There's a story of a prophet named Elijah. And Elijah, in one of these stories, he is going up against the prophets of Baal, this false god that are leading the people astray. And so he has this contest on a mountain, and and they they sacrifice these animals, and, and he doesn't just do that. He douses them in water, and it's this mountain full of soggy animal sacrifices. And then he prays for God to send fire down from heaven to prove his existence, boom, it happens. There's a story of the church, church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. Peter is arrested. He's put into prison by Herod. And the church collectively, they pray for Peter. An angel of the Lord comes and he is released from prison. I find these stories inspiring, but you know, sometimes they make me feel discouraged. Because I don't have some of these stories in my life like I find in the Bible. And the Bible even tells us what should happen when we pray in faith. There's a story of Jesus, remember? And he tells his disciples, he says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could look at that mountain and tell it to move from this place to that place. And there's a writer by the name of James, and in his book that he writes, He says that the prayer, or excuse me, he says that uh, when you pray in faith, then the sick will become well. Now, I've prayed for people to be healed from their sicknesses. I've prayed for married couples to become pregnant. I've prayed for those who curse Jesus would be transformed by Jesus. And yet, these prayers have not been answered as I'd like them to be. Some of my friends still cannot have children. Some of those I've prayed with still suffer. I've had friends who have died from cancer. I've seen many people seemingly grow in their disdain for Jesus. And I know I'm not alone because I've heard some of your stories too. I've heard some of your prayers over the year. I've partnered with you in some of those prayers. And yet sometimes it feels like nothing's happening. It feels like our situation isn't changing. Why doesn't God answer some of our prayers? Several years ago, I worked as an intern in the city of Seattle. I was a college student. 
up here in BC. And so I went home. My parents live outside of Seattle. And I was commuting to Seattle. And because I wasn't a regular in the area, my hometown, I was not very involved at the church I was at because I was only there for, for a little while. But I felt led. I felt compelled, drawn, whatever word you want to use, to get involved in one of their home Bible studies. So I made the commitment. I felt like it was something God wanted me to do. And so the day came, and I was in Seattle, and I finished my shift, and my plan was to get in my car and drive straight to this study. So I got in my vehicle, and I merged onto I-5, cut over to the left lane, let my 40-year-old Volkswagen Beetle do the rest, and I'm cruising along, passing cars, and all of a sudden I notice that my speed's starting to decline. I haven't done anything different to the accelerator. And I am going up a little bit of a hill, but, I mean, that's 1,600cc engine. I mean, you don't mess around with a VW Beetle, right? So I press the gas down a little bit further down to the floor, and my speed goes from 65 to 55 to 45, and I quickly cross four lanes of traffic and get to the right side of the road just as my car dies. And I sit there thinking, what's going on? I'm trying to go to Bible study, God. What? I try to start the car, and I pray for the car to start, and the car doesn't start. And the study starts without me, and I'm left there on the side of I-5, and my father and I spend the rest of the evening getting it towed back to my house. And I thought to myself, why now? Why won't you answer this prayer? I was disappointed. I was a bit angry. And I was discouraged because I'd been praying about this. Why doesn't God answer some of our prayers. Now, I think most of us understand why God doesn't answer some of our prayers. There's a a passage, again, in in the book of James. And he says, When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. I think we understand that when we pray for very selfish things, when we pray for things that maybe are only for our own benefit, yeah, maybe there is a good reason why we don't get our prayers answered. Maybe we understand why that is. But what about the prayers that are offered with the right motives? What about the prayers that really matter to us? What about the prayers that we pray when we're in right relationship with God? And seemingly there's no reason why they should not be answered. What about that friend with terminal illness that we've been praying for? Or the child who's suffering abuse at home? Or the relationship that needs a miracle? So I found in my own life that unanswered prayers lead to frustration. And when frustration runs for too long, it leads to hopelessness. And when you begin to pray with hopelessness, you really can have no expectation for your prayer, which is supposed to be done in faith, to be answered. So what do we do when we pray and nothing happens? And why doesn't God answer our prayers when we'd like him to? Well, I find it very difficult to identify with the character of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. I think I find it difficult because he was a very disciplined person. He was dedicated, he was devoted, he was spiritual. And yet there's a passage that he writes about in the book of 2 Corinthians that I can identify with. It's something I think all of us probably can. It's his second letter to the city of Corinth, the church in Corinth. And he's dealing with a a number of of people, false teachers, who are accusing him of being a false teacher. And so he spends quite a bit of time almost giving his ministry credentials, talking about his, his family, talking about some of the righteous things that he's done, talking about persecutions and suffering that he's gone through. He's got quite a list of all these things that he talks about to refute these people from saying that he's 
a false teacher because he wants them to know, I'm dedicated to this gospel of Christ and I'm teaching truth. And then towards the end of his argument, he starts to talk about his weaknesses, which seems a, maybe a little bit odd. And he starts to boast about his weaknesses. It's a fascinating passage, and it's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to begin in verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. And he writes this. He says, To keep me from being conceited because of these surprisingly great revelations. I should pause there for a second because he's just talked about he's gotten these divine revelations from God and he's had this incredible experience. And so this is one of the things that he's used to say, hey, I'm, I'm legit here. I'm not a false teacher. I've had these interactions with God. And, and so he uses this as an argument. But now he says to keep me be, to becoming conceited or prideful because of these great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, there's many theories about what this thorn in Paul's flesh was. Lots of ink has been spilled about this. Lots of people like to speculate about what, what was going on. What is this messenger of Satan? What is this thorn that's bothering Paul? Some people says, well, you know what? Um, maybe this was the, the, the opposition that he was facing, some of the people he was writing against. Maybe that's the form. Maybe that's this messenger of Satan that's sent to discourage him. And, and maybe he just doesn't outright name it because he doesn't want to give Satan or his adversaries any sort of credit. So, so maybe it's this, these attacks, these relational attacks and oppositions that he's experiencing. Maybe that's his thorn. It seems to fit the context pretty well. Other people say, you know, I, I think it was more of a physical condition. Maybe it was some sort of a physical disability or, or maybe it was some sort of chronic illness that he was suffering through. You know, m- maybe that seems to fit better in this. And, and that could be true too. It's interesting that Paul is oddly unspecific about this. He leaves it very wide open for what this thorn in the flesh might be. And I think there's a reason for this, but we'll, uh, we'll look at that in a few more minutes from now. Next verse, verse 8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. So here's what we know so far. Paul's battling some sort of ailment whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, whether it's relational, something's going on in his life and he isn't having too much fun with it. And so he does what you or I would do. He prays about it. He prays to God. If we're using old English here, the word that we would use is besought. Paul besought the Lord. He begged him. He pleaded with him. Because he's communicating with God, I think it's very applicable for us to say he prayed to God. He prayed to God that this thorn in the flesh would be removed. And he doesn't do it just once. Paul says he does it three times. Verse 9, he gets an answer. But he said to me. And the he in this context is the Lord. This is who he was pleading to. And the said appears to be the Lord's answer. We often talk about unanswered prayers or an answer to prayer as being synonymous with yes. That's usually what we like to say. I have an answer to prayer. That means great. Whatever you asked for, God gave it to you. Paul kind of says, I got an answer to prayer too, but as we see, it's actually not what he was looking for. We find out that this is God's response to him. So we can begin verse 9 by understanding to say, but the Lord responded, or the Lord answered to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, Paul hears the Lord say to him, 
My grace is enough. My grace, my favor, my provision, my protection, my presence, it's enough for you, Paul. Because in some miraculous way that we really can't understand, God's power is made perfect or it's made complete through Paul during this time of weakness. Now, if this is the first time that you've ever read this passage or flipped to the book of 2 Corinthians, you might be surprised because it doesn't fit the mode of some of these other stories. We like the stories where someone is suffering through something or someone needs something and they pray with the right motives and then boom, God shows up. Those are the stories that we're used to. And Paul's experience sounds way different than some of these other stories. Can you imagine Elijah there with the whole community and the 450 prophets of Baal and he's standing there next to the, the mountain with soggy bowl remains as he's praying for fire to come down and consume the offering and nothing happens? He just stands there for weeks and days and his prayer isn't answered? It sounds different from the stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And yet Paul is in this situation. These stories of answered prayers are the stories that I like reading. These are the stories that I like for my own life, that I want for my own life. And yet Paul's story sounds different because it is different. God answers Paul, but he doesn't remove the thorn in his flesh. Instead, he simply says, my grace is enough. And he keeps writing. This is the rest of verse 9. Paul, after he hears from the Lord, he says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that God's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, and in hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul doesn't get what he asks for, but he remains resolute. Paul doesn't get what he asks for, but he remains determined. Paul doesn't get what he asks for, but he is not discouraged. So how did he do this? How is Paul able to respond to an unanswered prayer in this way? How is he able to receive this word from the Lord and say, all right, his grace is enough. His power is made perfect through me. That's enough. I'll keep on going. I think Paul's perspective changes because even though he doesn't get the answer he's looking for, he hears from God. He receives a message from the Lord. And God tells him that his grace is enough. It almost has a, a similar sound to it to the character in the Old Testament named Job. Where Job spent so much time wondering and wanting, trying to figure out what is going on with my life. And he asked God all these questions. And when God finally appeared, he actually didn't even answer any of Job's questions. But yet his mere presence, his mere voice, somehow soothed Job. It made it all right in his life. So does this mean that God answers our prayers according to our desires, that his grace isn't enough? Because for Paul, he didn't get his prayer answered, and yet the message was, my grace is enough. So when our prayers are answered, does that mean that God's grace is not enough? No, I don't think so. God's grace is always enough. And yet at times, he chooses to answer our prayers as we request them of him. Does this mean that when God doesn't answer our prayers, that it's to keep us humble? That's what Paul's story was about. I suppose it could be. It might be a, a, a response from the Lord to us to keep us humble, to keep us focused on Him. I'm not really sure. That's Paul's story. 
And it's different from your story. And it's different from my story. We can't really be sure. But if we are forced to choose a principle from this story, a teaching point about prayer, I think the point is that God has good reason for saying no. God has good reason for saying no. He gives good reason to Paul in this story, and Paul receives it, and he seemingly understands it, whether or not he agrees with it or not, because he has this understanding that God has good reason for saying no. And this is a tough truth to accept. This isn't one of those biblical truths that we say, yes, name it and claim it. You know, God, God has good reason for saying no, and yet it's a biblical principle. It's a biblical principle. And my warning to you is if this is a principle that's difficult for you to believe or something that you disagree with because it differs from your view of God, then I challenge you to look at what your view of God is and to find support in the Scriptures. To compare it to this story that we see in, in Paul and say, how does your view of God matches Paul's experience in hearing from the Lord? Because in this story, we learn that God has good reason for denying Paul's request. Now, it doesn't make Paul's life any easier. I'm sure it was very difficult to receive. And yet, he persevered. He endured because he had heard from God. Now, Paul doesn't tell us how he heard from the Lord, but we know that he did hear from him. We know that Paul heard from the Lord after praying for three times. And when I read this passage, that seemed a bit odd to me. That he's specific about some things and not other things. He doesn't tell us what the thorn in the flesh is, but he tells us that he prayed for three times. And I think to myself, really? Three times? I mean, when I've got something that's really not even that difficult in my life, I'll pray three times for lunchtime. Like, Paul, you gave it one prayer, you gave it two, you gave it three, and you took your prayer bat and you went back to the dugout and said, well... I tried and it didn't work. Is that how we're to understand this passage? That's how I understood it the first time I read it. That Paul gave it a valiant effort. He prayed three times and then that was enough and he stopped praying. Well, I've got to, I've got to credit um, an author by the name of Scott Haifman who provides, a, in my opinion, a much better perspective on Paul's approach. He points out that Paul actually might be referencing or, or maybe even imitating the prayer of Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember that story, Jesus knew what was coming. And so he gathered his followers, his disciples, to pray through the night. And the Gospel tells us that three times he went to pray. And there's interruptions in between where he asks his disciples to pray with them, where they're falling asleep when, when something comes to mind. But it says three times this happened. Now, we won't ever know what Paul's thorn was. But we do know what Jesus' thorn was. He knew what was coming. He was praying for strength. And he, like Paul, seems to be praying for deliverance. He prayed that God would spare him from the road that he was facing. He was about to face betrayal and accusations and ridicule. He knew he would have to endure beatings and humiliation. He knew that there was going to be pain and sorrow and ultimately it would lead to the cross. And yet, he prayed to God that he would not have to drink that cup. That he would not have to experience it. So did Jesus do the same thing as Paul? Did he pray three times and say, whoops, I tried and... I guess I'll just give it my best shot and go from here on out. We say in the prayer of Jesus that he ultimately prays for the will of the Father to be done. His heart 
was for the Father's heart and His will to be accomplished. And if that meant drinking the cup that was prepared for Him, then He was willing to do it. I don't think that these are two stories about three valiant prayers that failed. They sound like a series of prayers that led to a new understanding, to a new reality of what they were about to face. There is a sequence involved here. And Hafen suggests that three is somewhat symbolic here of a beginning, a middle, and an end. Not an end to a prayer, but a culmination to the prayer. Sort of a a pinnacle where they received an answer. Not necessarily the answer they were looking for, but they heard from God. They experienced the presence of God. And that gave them the strength that they needed to persevere. It gave them good enough reason that it was good reason for God for saying no. Now, I sometimes think that prayer is about getting what I ask for. And Paul seems to understand that prayer is a way of connecting with God. And when we connect with God through prayer, we begin to see God's perspective on our own life. For Paul, this meant the continuation of a thorn in his flesh. It wasn't his desire. It's not what he wanted. But apparently, it was part of God's plan for his life. He had a a revelation to him that this thorn in his flesh would help him to remain humble. It would help him to experience and to know that God's power would be made complete and perfect through him, through this weakness. It it was a, a symbol to him. It was an identity marker from God of saying, I know what you're going through, but this is part of my plan. We don't know how Paul heard from the Lord in verse 9, but I wonder if Paul, part of Paul's prayer strategy was to start asking God why his request had not been granted. Now, I'm speculating a little bit here, but sometimes in the Scripture we're forced to ask questions. We're forced to ponder why. Why would, why would Paul do this? And how did Paul suddenly hear from the Lord? It could have been a divine encounter, but it also could have been very possible that Paul maybe halted his prayers to be uh, from being a removal of the thorn of his flesh, and maybe he began asking God why his request had not been granted. And this is my suggestion for us as a community of believers. Not to stop praying. Persistence in prayers is something that we see written about and taught in the Scriptures. We are to be persistent in our prayers. We don't know when God may respond to them or answer favorably to them. But I think it would be wise for us to put ourselves in a position to listen from God. To ask God, why has this prayer not been answered? What is your will in this situation? How might my thorn be used by you as part of my life's plan? Because Paul put himself in a position to listen. And I think we should do the same. It may not be the answer we're hoping for, but God has good reason for saying no. And prayer isn't about getting what we ask for. Prayer is a way of connecting with God. It's a time for us to tell him what's happening in our lives. For us to take the burdens and the pain and the sorrow that we're experiencing and communicate to him and to allow him to perfect us through his strength. And when we pray this way, our disappointment can be transformed into understanding. And our situation, no matter how difficult it may be, can actually be filled with hope as as we rely on his power to perfect our weaknesses. The band's going to lead us through a couple of songs of reflection. And and as they do, I want to close 
in a word of prayer. And then I want us to sing these words of truth. And as you're singing them, perhaps in your mind, in your heart, you can even visualize putting these requests before the Lord and maybe even asking that question of why. Why has this prayer not yet been answered? What are you teaching me through this circumstance in my life? Let's pray. Lord, your promise to us is that you will always be with us, that you will never forsake us, that you will never leave us alone. And yet sometimes I think our error is that we think that you will make our lives easier. And we see through your servants, Paul for one, that sometimes you deny requests, but you have good reason for doing so. And Lord, our our banquet hall here this morning, not only that, but our, our kids' rooms, they're filled with prayers. All that have been received from you, God, but not all that we feel we have received answers to, either favorably or even hearing from you at all. And so, Lord, I pray that that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that in the coming weeks when we conclude our series and, and we have a message focused specifically on listening through prayer, that you would teach us how to pray. You teach us how to hear your voice. And that we would understand what you're doing in our lives for the benefit of your kingdom. As Jesus taught his followers, uh, when we pray our requests, we also want to say, your will be done. Your kingdom may it come, Lord, as earth as it is on heaven. And so, Lord, may we see our life through your perspective when we pray. And may you give us the strength and the wisdom and the understanding to accept the times when you say no and to rely on your strength to help us persevere through our sufferings. Amen.